Hi, this is Phil Ford. So before anything, I should probably say this is not actually a Weird Studies episode. This is bonus content. It's an off week for us, and instead of just giving you nothing, JF and I thought it might be nice for me to drop one of my solo music history podcasts. I did a bunch of these earlier this year when the quarantine began. My undergraduate music history class, M402, went online, and I decided to create content for it in the form of a series of podcasts. And I've been releasing those on the Weird Studies Patreon. They're available for our 3 and $6 patrons to listen to. And the patrons over there have been enjoying them. And so that gave me the idea that in an off week, when we're not releasing one of our flagship shows, maybe I should drop one of my solo music history podcasts. Again, not Weird Studies stuff, but nevertheless, perhaps of interest to our audience. And that could accomplish a couple of things. Number one, it could give you a sense of some of the stuff, by no means all of the stuff, but some of the stuff that you might expect to encounter if you sign up for the Weird Studies Patreon. But also, I just really, really love this music, and I want to share that love with you. A word to the wise, when we all scrambled into our separate isolations, I had to figure out how to record a solo podcast. I had to figure out how to get the audio right in, shall we say, very limited and compromised circumstances. And for the later podcasts, I pretty much got my act together and managed to get it sounding okay. For this one, the sound is at times a little rough, but I'd like to think that the content is good. Well, you can be the judge of that. In any event, I hope you enjoy it. This podcast focuses particularly on a film that Duke Ellington participated in in the mid-1930s. It's a film called Symphony in Black. And while the podcast focuses particularly on that film and the music that Ellington created for it, it also branches off in a number of different directions. Thinking about an orchestral suite that Ellington created for a Carnegie Hall concert in the early 1940s, and also connections to other short films that Ellington was involved with. And en route, there's some somewhat technical, but I hope not too difficult to follow, discussion of how American popular song works and how jazz composers like Duke Ellington built new compositions on top of well-loved and well-known pieces like George Gershwin's I Got Rhythm. Don't let the technical stuff put you off. There isn't that much of it. And the main point that I want to get to and that I hope stands out clearly is the long game that Duke Ellington was playing. He was trying to articulate an idea of African-American history such that African-Americans could understand where they'd come from and thereby understand where they might be headed. And if you're interested in reading more of that, there's an essay that I wrote about 11 years ago and finally saw the light of day, of, I think in 2017, called Ellington the Entertainer. And I've put that up in the Patreon as well. And that goes into greater depth and some of the ideas that I'm playing with here. I certainly don't expect anybody to read that essay, and you certainly don't have to read it in order to understand what I'm talking about here. Like I said, if you want to go deeper, you can always head over to Patreon, sign up, and read to your heart's content. Anyway, thanks for listening to this little intro, and I hope you enjoy The Duke of Ellington.
welcome to the M402 in Exile podcast. I'm Phil Ford, but you already knew that. Today I'm going to talk about some American royalty. That is to say, I am talking about the Duke of Ellington. Hey, uh, look, pressure cooker, I bet you know a lot of my friends. Like uh, Duke of Ellington, Count of Basie, Earl of Hines, Cab of Calloway, Satchmo of Armstrong. Upstarts and rogues. Never heard of them. That's a clip from a Looney Tune short, Nightmare Hare where Bugs Bunny has traveled to the time of King Arthur's court and tries to establish his credentials with a disdainful knight in armor. Bugs is bluffing, of course, but he's also quite right. Jazz musicians like Count Basie, Earl Hines, and especially Duke Ellington were the real American royalty in the era when this cartoon short was made. This was in 1955, when the Cold War was at its coldest, and the United States was battling with the Soviet Union for cultural prestige. Whatever else the Soviet Union had, they didn't have anyone like Ellington, a composer, pianist, and orchestra leader, recording hits for 30 years and playing jazz for almost as long as jazz had existed. Even early on, he had strained the boundaries between art and popular entertainment. European critics noticed him early, and they wrote serious, chin-stroking essays on how this music reminded them of French Impressionist music, or how this music heralded a new rebirth of the arts, or what have you. From very early on, everybody knew Ellington was special. Or, to put it in terms that Ellington himself preferred, he was beyond category. Ellington was, I think, happy enough to be called a jazz musician, but he didn't want to be limited to jazz, or indeed any other kind of music. To be called a jazz musician assumes that you're filling some particular niche and therefore can't be understood in the same terms that, say, a composer of the Western art music tradition would. And Ellington sought to write a kind of music that would blur such distinctions. You can see this particularly in some of his early films. Ellington remained an innovator throughout his entire career. And one way we can see this is in how he jumped on the emerging technology of sound film with both feet. Ellington starred in a very early 1929 sound short called Black and Tan Fantasy, which is named after one of his early hits. And in that film, he portrays a struggling young jazz musician whose dancer girlfriend is forced to dance herself to death by a heartless club owner. And on her deathbed, Ellington performs for her his black and tan fantasy. This is one of those pieces that European critics had whipped themselves up in a froth about. as you have doubtless read in the syllabus that I circulated this last weekend, I'm organizing these podcasts around a single piece of music. I mean, I'm going to drag in all kinds of other pieces of music to make my points, but the focus of each podcast is going to be a single piece of music, or in this case, a single piece of musical film, Symphony in Black. Again, Ellington appears as a pianist, composer, but this time we see him in a kind of upscale penthouse, working on a commission for a new symphonic composition. And as we see him working on the piece, 
we see the images that are conjured in his mind as he composes the music. The first movement shows workers, toiling African-American men, lugging heavy sacks, shoveling coal, set to a kind of plodding music driven by a heavy drum beat. The second episode shows a very young Billie Holiday mourning the loss of her lover in a blues. The third episode shows the funeral for a small child. We see the tiny coffin in a darkened church, tear-stained faces, and an elderly minister raising his hands towards heaven. And then we get to the finale, Harlem Rhythm, which shows up-to-date modern young people dancing in a New York City hotspot. Now, Duke Ellington's career is studded with extraordinary artistic successes, amazing hits, ambitious compositions, and some of those pieces we'll actually talk about in this podcast, Cottontail, and also his, at the time, highly controversial, Sweet, Black, Brown, and Beige, which he subtitled A Tone Parallel to the American Negro. Now, Black, Brown, and Beige is one of the high points of Ellington's career. It's where that whole beyond category thing really comes to bear. He composed it for his orchestra to perform at Carnegie Hall in 1943, eight years after Symphony in Black. And at this point, Ellington was probably the most successful and well-known band leader in the world. Somebody who, as I say, had taken critics around the world by storm and whose extraordinarily delicate, coloristic, and imaginative music seemed to sketch possibilities of some fusion, perhaps, between jazz and Western art music, or to use a word that I like to use in this class, a confluence. Confluence, by the way, meaning flowing together. You can picture the Afro-Dysporic tradition that I've spent a bit of time talking about as a stream running parallel to the Western art music stream. It's in the early decades of the 20th century that these two streams begin to blend. It's not always a happy merging, There was no shortage of classical musicians who abominated any attempt to mix classical music with what they thought of as a worthless and disposable popular culture. And for that matter, there were any number of jazz musicians and jazz fans who wanted their music to remain their music, uncontaminated by the ambitions of highbrow critics and composers. And that orchestral suite that Duke Ellington premiered in Carnegie Hall in 1943, Black, Brown, and Beige, that is famously one of the most controversial moments in Ellington's career. A lot of people who had supported Ellington from the beginning felt that he was beginning to abandon jazz for a pretentious, artsy sort of music that didn't fit him very well. And then, of course, there were also highbrow snobs who felt that Ellington whatever his abilities as a jazz musician, could never quite make it as a classical composer. I'm going to talk a little bit about Black, Brown, and Beige because it's such an important moment of Ellington's life. The central purpose of that piece is to create a kind of narrative, a story of African-American history from slavery in the American South through the pleasures and challenges and hardships of city life This is what the musicologist John Howland calls the Africa to Dixie to Harlem narrative. Ellington didn't invent this plot shape. The Africa to Dixie to Harlem narrative had been around for a while. Uh, Nightclub entertainers would use it as kind of a backdrop to their more ambitious floor shows. But Ellington had a serious purpose in using it. It's often been remarked that slavery cuts people off from their past and also from their future cuts them off from a future for obvious reasons, because there's no social advancement in a slave-owning society. There's only the prospect of working until you die, 
and your children suffering much the same fate. But it's worth remembering that slavery also robs people of their past. Slave owners don't have any interest in seeing their slaves remembering their stories, their songs, their customs, their religion, their language, because such things might instill a certain sense of pride, a certain sense that you were made for better things than picking cotton in the field of somebody who bought you from some people who have stolen you from your home. Duke Ellington belonged to a movement of African-American artists and intellectuals in the first half of the 20th century that aimed at restoring a sense of past, at a sense of a cultural heritage, of something to be proud of. Ellington was famously a elegant and soft-spoken guy, not given to inflammatory political pronouncements and apt to let his music do the talking. But he was what used to be called a race man, somebody who cared very much for the progress of African Americans and sought through his art to help it come into being. The Africa to Harlem to Dixie narrative was there not just to amuse and entertain paying customers, but to tell a story of an unjust past and to sketch out a promise for a better future. To put it in terms that later generations might use, Ellington wanted to raise consciousness among his listeners, to remind white audiences of the accomplishments, to say nothing of the basic humanity of African Americans, and to remind African Americans that their story was not just one of tragedy, but also of overcoming. Ellington's first attempt at telling the story was not black, brown, and beige. It was that short film he made in 1935, Symphony in Black. You can almost think of Symphony in Black as a kind of dry run for the more elaborate and much better known later work. And there's a lot of parallels between these two works. I'm going to talk a little bit about those parallels. Mostly, though, I'm going to talk about the Africa to Dixie to Harlem narrative. And I'm going to get deeper into it by comparing these two works, Black, Brown, and Beige, and Symphony in Black. But before I can get to that, I need to explain a few things about Ellington's musical style and how he uses standard jazz forms. We've already encountered what I guess you could call the standard jazz form. Now, the standard jazz form goes something like this. A group of musicians plays an agreed-upon tune. It might be a blues, or it might be a Tin Pan Alley song like I Got Rhythm by George Gershwin. Regardless of what the tune is, the musicians are going to play it more or less straight at the beginning. And then subsequently what they'll do is play through the chord changes of that original tune. But instead of just playing the original tune over and over again, they'll improvise over the chord changes. And the chord changes, or simply changes, repeat over and over again. And each time you make it all the way through the chord changes for that tune that we heard in the head, that is what is called a chorus. There's no set number of choruses that a jazz performance is going to have. It basically has to do with how many musicians want to have a turn playing a solo. For the most part, what happens in these choruses is that one by one, the different musicians in the ensemble get up and play an improvised solo. Very often, a soloist might play for a single chorus, or maybe a couple of choruses. Musicians might trade back and forth within a single chorus. For example, there's something called trading fours, where two musicians might take turns playing four-measure improvisations in alternation with one another. Regardless of who's playing what in which chorus, you go through a bunch of choruses, and eventually you get to the end, 
And there's usually what's called an out chorus. You'll hear all or at least part of the tune that we heard at the beginning played straight at the end, I guess, to kind of remind us what we've been listening to. So the chorus form in jazz, you can almost think of it as being something like a, I don't know, like a steeplechase. Maybe that's a weird thing to compare it to. I'm not assuming that people listening to this are big fans of equestrian sports. But a steeplechase is kind of like a race where a horse has to go through a track that has a bunch of different obstacles. And one by one, each of the riders takes a turn through this course and they're judged by how well they clear all the various hurdles, jumping over ponds and haystacks and whatnot, right? And, you know, it's a fixed track, so each competitor kind of goes through the same track. Well, you can kind of think of that by analogy with what jazz musicians are doing when they're improvising choruses. Each one is going through the same steeplechase track. Uh, It's the same set of obstacles, the same harmonic switchbacks, but just as each jockey is going to negotiate all the various obstacles in slightly different ways, likewise, the jazz musicians, when confronted with different harmonies, different movements within the tune, are going to kind of handle them with their own particular style. And a lot of the pleasure of listening to jazz is listening to a kind of friction between what you're hearing the improvising musician do and how that either works with or maybe pulls against the shape of the original changes, the original tune. So let's take as an example here, I Got Rhythm, which along with the 12-bar blues is the most ubiquitous improvising formula that jazz musicians use. I Got Rhythm is a particularly famous song by George Gershwin, one of the greatest composers of American popular song. Often American popular song composed by such artists as George Gershwin, Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, and Indiana's own Hoagy Carmichael. This is sometimes called the Great American Songbook, or maybe a little bit more commonly, Tin Pan Alley. And uh, if you've ever wondered why this stuff is called Tin Pan Alley, it's because there's a district in New York City where all the music publishers used to be. Uh, George Gershwin, in fact, worked for one of these publishers early in his career as what's called a song plugger. You've got to realize this is back when sheet music was king. This is before broadcast music really kind of took over, where if people wanted to consume the latest hot song, they had to go and buy the sheet music, right? So this meant that sheet music publishers were always in tight competition with one another to get famous singers to sing their songs on the vaudeville circuit. That way, people would go to see a show, hear the song, and be like, oh, I want to play this on the parlor upright back at home. So what song pluggers like George Gershwin did is they would play in these kind of showrooms, all the newest songs hot off the presses, and try to interest visiting musicians. And the reason that Tin Pan Alley is called Tin Pan Alley is because, as you can imagine, a street filled with music publishers, all with their own song pluggers, all banging out songs as loudly as possible, you can imagine that that might have made quite a cacophony, something like the banging of tin pans, hence the name Tin Pan Alley. I Got Rhythm is a song that kind of comes out of that world. It was a number from a Broadway show that George Gershwin composed in 1930 called Girl Crazy. And it's a pretty typical Tin Pan Alley song form. It's our old friend, Lyric Binary, A-A-B-A. 
And the classic Tin Pan Alley form is that each of those four limbs or phrases of the overall song form, each of those is going to be eight measures long. So eight plus eight plus eight plus eight. 32 bar song form. Now, a great many Tin Pan Alley songs, maybe even most Tin Pan Alley songs that use this lyric binary form aren't exactly 32 measures. I Got Rhythm, for example, adds a little two-measure tag in the final A phrase. But basically, we're talking about four phrases of equal length in this A-A-B-A pattern, where the A phrase remains within the tonic, and the B phrase is a little bit of a contrast. You know, jazz musicians will call this B phrase the channel or the bridge or the middle eight. And those terms kind of give you a sense of what the B section is for. It's a bridge for one thing between successive A phrases. It's a channel cut between successive A phrases. I mean, if you just heard the same phrase over and over again, A, 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 that would be pretty boring. So the B phrase gives you a little bit of sonic variety. If the A phrase tends to stay within the tonic, the B phrase might modulate a little bit, usually by some kind of circle of fifths sequencing kind of movement. And that B phrase will end up on a dominant preparation that'll slingshot us back to the tonic and back to the final repetition of the A phrase. Now, I want to point something out here. That A, A, B, A phrase form pertains to only one part of the song, and that's the chorus. This gets a little confusing because I just got done talking about the chorus as the name for this kind of turn around the steeplechase track of chord changes, right? But if we're talking about Tin Pan Alley songs, each song is going to be divided into two parts, a verse and a chorus. The verse, you can almost think of it by analogy with the recitative in an old-fashioned opera seria or in a Mozart opera, where recitative is where the action happens. It's where we find the motivation for whatever emotional state the following aria is going to portray. Likewise, in a verse-chorus structure for a Tin Pan Alley song, the verse will give us a kind of a setup. In this case, it's Ethel Merman, the singer, telling us how life has its ups and downs, but hey, no problem because... I got rhythm. And then, having arrived at the conclusion that, in fact, no matter how tough things might seem, it's okay, because I got rhythm, I got music, who could ask for anything more? That emotion is what the chorus part of the song exists to elaborate. But these days, people don't usually perform the verses. They're seen as largely disposable. If you listen to Ella Fitzgerald's recordings of the Great American Songbook, you'll notice that she keeps the verses. She's a classicist. But when I'm talking about this AABA phrase form that forms the basis for all of the improvisations that jazz musicians do, I'm talking about the chorus. That's the bit that jazz musicians use in their improvisations. So, without further ado, let's listen to the verse from I Got Rhythm.
day Happy with my luck How do I get that way Look at what I've got Okay, so we have set up the idea that we got rhythm and now we're going to express that emotion in a lyric binary form. So here's the first A phrase of that. I got rhythm, I got music, I got my man to ask for anything more. And we're going to hear that A phrase repeated. And here's the B phrase, the middle eight, the passage, the bridge, whatever you want to call it. And having worked our way back to the dominant, here we are back in the A phrase one more time. So, did you get all that? Good. Now try to hear how it works all together in a single unbroken chorus. We're going to hear a second chorus, that is to say, another turn round the steeplechase of I Got Rhythm chord changes. And this time, Ethel Merman is going to live up to her reputation as a leather-lunged vaudeville belter and give us an unforgettable send-off. ladies and gentlemen, is not Belcato, it's Canbelto. So, I've gone into this kind of detail to set up what happens in Duke Ellington's Cotton Tale. This is a piece from 1940 when the Ellington Band was in the form that aficionados call the Blanton-Webster Band. That is to say, there were two notable soloists, Jimmy Blanton, a bassist, and Ben Webster, a tenor saxophonist, whose particular style and sound added a kind of dash of color to the Ellington ensemble sound that gave it a very particular quality that jazz fans prize very highly. And I'm going to particularly talk about Ben Webster's contribution to this particular performance. But before I do, I'm going to say this piece, Cottontail, is a contrafact. That is to say, it's a version of I Got Rhythm where we've entirely removed the original melody and instead we put a new melody on top of it. The chord changes are more or less the same but we have this new melody. That's a contrafact. But what I'm going to do now is walk through Cottontail and do much the same thing that I did with I Got Rhythm. I'm going to talk about how it breaks down into choruses of I Got Rhythm changes or let's just call them rhythm changes, 
and I'm going to make comments on what you're hearing in each of those choruses. Now, before I was using the metaphor of a steeplechase, which might or might not convey anything to you, but I'm going to switch it up. Different metaphor. Let's think of a box of chocolates. Now, in a box of chocolates, you get, I don't know, maybe 12 little, I don't know, what do you call those things? The little nest-shaped indentations where you put the chocolates. You know what I mean? It's sort of like an egg carton with little, I don't know, places where you put the eggs. Anyway, you can imagine a jazz performance like Cottontail being kind of like a box of chocolates where each of those little things that holds the chocolate, each of those little containers, that is a chorus. And just like when you open up a box of chocolates, you're like, ooh, what's this? It's a caramel. Ooh, I believe that is a macadamia nut dipped in bitter chocolate or whatever it is you're going to sort of be delighted by the variety and the novelty of whatever content has been put into that container. And that's kind of how it works generally in jazz, but especially in Duke Ellington's jazz. Because Duke Ellington had this remarkable talent that people noticed right from the beginning, that he was not only a composer and arranger of music, he was also, in a certain sense, an arranger of human beings and human energies. He had a gift for finding musicians who had a very particular sound, a very particular style that he could use. And he would use their voices, their characteristic soloistic style. And he would deploy them within the little chocolate box chorus containers that make up the forms of his tracks. So I'm going to give you a quick roadmap of how that looks. The opening chorus is the tune, the head. And what we hear, if you've got your ears attuned to I Got Rhythm, you'll hear pretty much the same chords, but you'll hear a new tune. Again, this is a contrafact. Then, once we've gone through that, we'll hear two choruses with the tenor saxophonist Ben Webster. Chorus three is split up. Remember I said that, you know, usually one soloist will take a whole chorus or maybe a couple of choruses, but not always. And in this case, we start seeing how Ellington kind of gets clever by alternating different orchestral and instrumental sonorities within the same little chocolate box container, the same chorus. So the chorus is going to be in the form A-A-B-A. And in this case, we're going to have the first two A sections performed by the brass and rhythm section, and then the contrasting B limb will be played by baritone saxophonist Harry Carney, and then finally the return of A in chorus three is played by Duke Ellington himself, playing some percussive bombs reminiscent of the later bebop pianist Thelonious Monk, and that's no accident, Thelonious Monk was heavily indebted to Duke Ellington. Anyway, once we get through that rather eventful third chorus, we get to the fourth chorus, which consists of reeds and block chords. Finally, there's chorus five. Brass and reeds are playing in call and response through the first two A limbs of our AABA lyric binary form. Then everybody plays in the B phrase, and then everything gets quiet again in the final A limb of that fifth chorus, and we hear a shortened reprise of the tune. So long story short, we have a head, we have chorus one and two featuring Ben Webster, chorus three alternating between the brass Harry Carney and Duke Ellington. Chorus four, we hear reeds and block chords. And chorus five, brass and reeds and call and response. Then everybody, then a quick reprise of the tune, and we're out. So let's hear how that works. Okay, here's the opening chorus, the tune. 
Okay, repeat the A limb. Here's the B limb. And back to the A limb. And here's chorus one with Ben Webster. that a limb all right now let's hear that middle eight and now the last a limb okay ending the first course and beginning the next one us with the channel. Back to A. Okay, we're wrapping up chorus two, heading into chorus three. Brass and rhythm section. section with Harry Carney on baritone saxophone and Duke Ellington himself the reprise of A in chorus 3 all right here comes chorus 4 reeds and block chords obviously this isn't improvised this is arranged and one of the cool things about this whole track and Ellington's stuff generally is how he alternates arranged orchestrated parts with more soloistic bits all right so we're heading towards the end of chorus four winding up to the big finish chorus five right here brass and reeds calm response it's very exciting Everybody! Everybody playing that B limb. And now we're going to take it down a notch. Hear a quick reprise of the tune in the last A limb of the last chorus. And we're out. By the way, I should point out that my daughter has begun practicing. Uh, I live in a small house, and my daughter's a violist, my wife is a cellist, my son is a guitarist and everybody plays music all the time so there's basically no way out of hearing people practicing or teaching or just basically doing their thing it'll be part of the special charm of these podcasts the audio verite quality as you listen to my daughter practicing viola um, i feel like the occasion calls for some kind of viola joke anyway so if you think about the chorus structure of the typical jazz performance, for example, the chorus structure in Cottontail, if you're thinking about that the way I've explained it, as a kind of box of chocolates where we're dipping in to each little container and finding something new and original and exciting, then 
one of the things that you're really listening for in jazz generally and in Ellington's music in particular are how he's setting all of the individual voices of his instrumentalists, you know, just setting them up. But if that's the case, then, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time thinking like, what are the special qualities of those instrumental soloists? And we're going to be particularly attentive to timbre, to performative nuance. Remember what I've said before about the Afro-Dysporic tradition and the way that there's a common focus on a quality of the voice, the subjectivity or the humanity of the person making the music. And in this particular case, we're talking about Ben Webster. Now, there's a really great quote I want to read out. This is a jazz critic named Whitney Baye, who wrote about jazz for many years in the New Yorker magazine. And he has a really good way of describing Ben Webster's signature style. He writes, In a slow ballad number, Webster's tone is soft and enormous, and he's apt to start his phrases with whooshing smears that give one the impression of being suddenly picked up by a breaker and carried smoothly to shore. In fast tempos, a curious thing frequently happens. He will play one clean, rolling chorus, and then, whether from uneasiness, excitement, or an attempt to express the inexpressible, adopt a sharp, growling tone that, used sparingly, can be extremely effective. That's a pretty good description of what Webster does in the two choruses that he has in Cottontail. His tone is big and soft, and we do hear a few whooshing smears. And just as Baye says, he plays one chorus pretty straightforward, and then he starts kind of getting this growl in his sound right at the beginning of the second chorus. He's playing this little figure in rising sequence, and it's like definitely ratcheting up the tension. And at that point, he sort of kicks his playing into a higher gear. And that's one of his signature moves. Ellington started developing this style of jazz that's highly dependent upon the orchestration, not only of sections of the orchestra, but the individual voices of his soloists. He started fooling around with that many years before. His first big job was at a famous nightclub, the Cotton Club, where Ellington and his orchestra played several nights every week. Ellington and his orchestra were hard-working musicians coming up with fresh music every night for the dancers at the Cotton Club. And that might sound like an unpromising beginning. Like, we're used to the idea that art gets created under hothouse conditions where you're given plenty of time to develop and study, and perhaps you have a scholarship or something that allows you to pursue your art without having to hold down a job. That was not the life of a jazz musician in the 1920s. And sometimes I feel like comparing this to, you know, Franz Josef Haydn at Esterhazy, where he had a sort of similar gig, you know, he was having to create new music for the prince on a regular basis, you know, the prince was like, I feel like playing a new baritone sonata or whatever, then Haydn's on the hook to churn one out for him. And Haydn often liked to say that that kind of very strict discipline of just making music to order was responsible for his craft, his tremendous skill as a composer. From this point of view, Esterhazy is sort of like a lab where Haydn could experiment with every imaginable kind of combination of sound, everything you might possibly want to do within the constraints of the classical style he was working in. And I feel like something similar was going on with Ellington. 
you know, there's a lot to be said for the creative process of throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. Actually, there's a more recent example I could give you. This is the legendary hip-hop crew, The Roots, who have been the house band for Jimmy Fallon's show for quite a few years. I read an interview with Questlove, the drummer and music director of that band, and someone asked him if playing every night for Jimmy Fallon and, again, generating tons of new music every night, somebody asked if that was something that limited their creativity, and Questlove said, no, actually kind of the opposite. It's something that allows them to be more creative, that they're able to stretch out more because they're just generating tons of music. And they can, once again, they can treat it as a lab. They can try out pretty much anything they can think of. And if it flies, it flies. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because, like, the albums that they've done since they started playing in the Jimmy Fallon show, Undone from 2011, and then you shoot your cousin from 2014. Those are like the most experimental, most imaginative albums the Roots have put out from a very long and highly creative career. So, I don't know. Cotton Club was in many ways graduate school for Ellington. Um, you can get an idea of what a Cotton Club floor show might have looked like from another early film sound short that Ellington did. This is called A Bundle of Blues, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. I think you can find it on YouTube pretty easily. And, you know, as a film, it's nothing special. It's just a series of performances. It's, you know, the typical nightclub review format where you have a sequence of musical numbers alternating between, like, hot numbers and kind of slower numbers, more sentimental, more exciting. You know, there's a couple of pretty dancing girls in one of them. You know, it's entertainment. But Ellington outgrows that review format or perhaps it's more accurate to say that he sort of tailors it to create a more ambitious film. And now, finally, I'm getting to Symphony in Black. Musically speaking, Symphony in Black does a lot of the same stuff that I've been talking about with Cottontail. Symphony in Black offers us some wonderful opportunities to listen to soloists playing music that Ellington wrote specifically with their voices in his inner ear. So, for example, the third part, a Hymn of Sorrow, that's the part that takes place at the funeral of a small child, Ellington used one of his trumpet players, Arthur Wetzel, to give voice to the mourning and suffering of that scene. Wetzel had this kind of heart-sick sound that he could create, and Ellington is like, yes, I want that voice to express this moment of profound sadness. And you can go through all the parts of Symphony in Black, and you can find similar examples. In part one, The Laborers, when we hear a kind of wailing alto saxophone solo, that's Johnny Hodges. And again, Johnny Hodges has a particular kind of timbre that Ellington knew would be perfect for a piece like The Laborers, which emphasizes the suffering of compulsory labor. In the second part, which is about the love triangle where poor Billy Holiday gets left out in the cold, we hear Lawrence Brown's trombone in the part where the faithless lover is dancing in his apartment with his new girl.
So you can definitely see how Symphony in Black, like any number of Ellington's other pieces, can be used to showcase a succession of musical voices, musical styles. But there's something else going on in this film, too. And it's the way that Ellington is also using a kind of episodic format to give us a succession of dramatic as well as musical tableau. There's the opening scene of the laborers, there's the scene of the love triangle, there's the scene in the church, and then there's the scene in the up-to-date modern nightclub. You know, there's not like a story or a plot that's unfolding in each one of these things. Not really. Each one is its own little kind of diorama of a, a different situation, an archetypal situation from African-American life. They're more like illustrations, sketchbook drawings, than they are fully realized stories. And actually, this is something that George Orwell said about Charles Dickens and Dickens' characters. Orwell wrote... There they are, fixed up forever, like little twinkling miniatures painted on snuffbox lids, completely fantastic and incredible, and yet somehow more solid and infinitely more memorable than the efforts of serious novelists. To continue my chocolate box analogy, you can kind of think of Symphony in Black as a chocolate box, and in each of the little nested containers, we can find a single twinkling image from African-American life. Now, we have to understand, film is a collaborative medium. And though Ellington clearly had the basic idea behind Symphony in Black, he didn't really have a say in exactly how it was going to be filmed and put together. Actually, he really wanted the funeral scene to come last because he thought it was the most emotionally moving. Ellington himself said he, quote, put into the dirge all the misery, sorrow, and undertones of the conditions that went into the baby's death. But needless to say, that's not the sort of thing that's going to send the audiences home with a smile, so he was overruled. And we can look at this now and we might think, eh, it's a little, it's dated. Maybe some aspects of it might strike us as a little stereotypical. But I want to take this seriously as an expression of something that's very close to Ellington's heart. And this is getting back to where I started, talking about the Africa to Dixie to Harlem narrative and Ellington's project of recovering memory, wanting to connect his audience with a deeper African-American history. Of course, this has an entertainment function. This film was made like all films, to make money. But again, I think what Ellington is trying to do is to tell a more serious story. And that story for Ellington is a story of suffering and redemption, of finding spiritual comfort in the church and through art. You could say that he's imagining a past in order to create a future. And think of it this way. If you belong to a people that has suffered slavery and all of its myriad consequences, you might reasonably ask, what did we ever do to deserve this? Indeed, this is an important question in the Jewish tradition. Jews, of course, themselves having been made slaves of the Egyptians, a fact that was not lost upon Ellington or any number of other churchgoers. If you and your people have been put to some kind of trial, if this is a test, then what do you do to pass it? As Curtis Mayfield put it, you keep on pushing. You find comfort where comfort can be found, in the church, in music. You walk the road you're on with steadfastness and in the knowledge that just as you have a past, you also have a future. You have a destiny, and that destiny is to throw off your bonds and attain the place in history that you were always destined for. And so when we get to the end of Symphony in Black, you might think, okay, 
We're going to have a big Harlem showcase number at the end to send the people home with a smile, showcase the kind of fun you might have in the club. But for Ellington, seeing sharply dressed African-Americans out on the town enjoying the finest of modern jazz in a sophisticated modernist setting, this to Ellington suggests making it. Not just having enough money to go out and have a night on the town, but for Ellington, the vision represented at the end of Symphony in Black is modernity. It's the goal. It's the destination. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, Ford's a musicologist. Musicologists say a lot of things. How do we know that all of this stuff is how Ellington actually thought? For once, I actually have a pretty good answer to that. There is an unpublished typescript that Ellington wrote sometime in the mid-30s, right around the time he worked on Symphony in Black. It's a typescript titled Black, Brown, and Beige, which, of course, is the title of that well-known suite he would compose a few years later, in 1943. It's a kind of half-poem, half-prose sketch of an imaginary scenario that Ellington created for a kind of Afrodisporic everyman, who he calls Bula, and his companion, who he calls Vula. What he wants to do is tell a story of Bula and Vula from the point when they're taken from Africa right up to the present day in Harlem. Bula is an everyman figure. He suffers under slavery. He finds consolation in religion. He fights for the United States in the American Revolution and in the Civil War and the First World War, and now with the rise of fascism in Europe, is fixing to fight in the Second World War. And at every point along Bula's path, he hears the beat of a drum, which is rendered always in all caps, boom, 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 with exclamation points. And sometimes he changes it up. So, for example, when he begins to read the Bible and go to church, the boom of the drum or the boom of the slave master's whip becomes the ding-dong-ding-dong of church bells. And that boom, 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 boom comes back at the end when we find ourselves at the end of the journey in Harlem. And clearly what Ellington is trying to suggest is that all of the pain that Bula has suffered over centuries has been transmuted alchemically into art. And, of course, Ellington is talking about himself here. This is what I mean when I say that Ellington's vision is of regaining a past in order to gain a future. It's the awareness of the past, the sufferings and joys of the past, the overcoming and the endurance, all of those things are what make us in the present. Ellington would probably agree with me that the past isn't dead. It isn't even the past. Ultimately, I think that what the prose poem typescript of Black, Brown, and Beige, as well as the symphonic suite that takes its name and the 1935 film Symphony in Black, what they all have in common is a mood of prophecy. The whole typescript is about 40 pages long, and there's no way I can read it all to you here. But I'm going to read a few excerpts. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I'm going to keep the excerpts in an order that suggests the large arc of Bula's story and bears out what I've just told you about this mood of prophecy. A message is shot through the jungle by drums. Boom, 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 boom. Like a tom-tom in steady precision. Like the slapping of bare black feet across the desert wastes. Like hunger pains. Like lash after lash as they crash and they curl and they cut deep, like kidneys that thump, like heartbeats that bump out of tempo, like the thud of the butt of the whip, like an axe handle crushing the skull. Boom, 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 boom. 1619. 
Poor Bula, down, beaten down. No, don't move, chains cut deep. The ship rolls, chains tear at his flesh. The ship pitches, his throbbing, pounding skull beats a tattoo on the mercilessly unyielding boards. Boom, 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 boom. He was a slave, in kind. His body toiled, his mind. His heart, his soul were busy, too. Busy with dreams of freedom. Work, 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 work. But to work was to grow strong, and he knew weak men could not survive this test of worthiness to be free. He looked up at the sky, and it seemed to say, Bula, look at the sun. You're not alone. How warm and friendly it has ever been. Do you need more than other men to comfort you? Look now, is this not the same golden sun, which fired your brain along the calm Euphrates, and smiled upon your seeking, searching sorties as you followed the course of the Ganges, absorbing here poetic, soaring folklore, leaving there a part of you, a rhythmic song? Yes, it's the same, the same old sun which smiled upon you as you pushed along the Nile and planted seeds, seeds of the first civilization known to man. Drink them in, their glowing stories of Babylon and all her glories, knowing well her culture sprang from black men, forgotten long ago, Mero, from whence the first bright light flamed up in Ethiopia to guide mankind along the way. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment. You might be wondering at some of the references he seems to be throwing out. Mero, for example, that's spelled M-E-R-O-E. And elsewhere, he talks about the kingdom of Songhai and its system of agriculture and cotton weaving in the Sudan. And, you know, as I was reading this, I was like, where is he getting all of this stuff? Like, is he talking about stuff that everybody knew? And like, I'm the one person who doesn't know about this stuff. As it turns out, Ellington had read a work by the great turn-of-the-century African-American writer W.E.B. Du Bois called The Negro. And the point of that work was to do what I have been arguing Ellington is doing in Symphony in Black, which is to create a panoramic vision of African history in order to restore a sense of a possible future. Ellington was apparently very impressed by this work and sought to apply some of its teachings in this unpublished manuscript. Come Sunday... Bula was irresistibly drawn to that pretty white house with the steeple, so tall, shining there in the sun. Those who entered the wide oak doors were scrubbed and polished and all spruced up. How happy they seemed, bonnets nodding, faces shining in the morning sun. Ding, dong, ding, dong. A new note entered his consciousness. It was pleasant to hear. Bula listened. The music was soothing and sweet, even from the outside looking in. He longed to enter and be a part of this silvery-tongued ding-dong, ding-dong. Come Monday, a sleepless night of a struggle, left Bula not a weary man, but a man of new and boundless strength, a man fully refreshed, a man strong with faith, a man alive with hope, with something to cling to, something to live for, something to work for, something to hope for, something to sing about, something to shout about. Going about his tasks, that sun up to sundown, Bula's face smiled into the sun. Ah, yes, but Harlem, you are strong. You've stood the test, and they are wrong. You've dodged the snare of subjugation and ripped the bars with education. And now you stand prepared to lead your brothers from the wilderness of hopelessness and need. Take heart. In every land where you have been, you've left your mark on all the men who since have perished, and you've survived. Yes, Harlem, land of valiant youth. 
You've wiped the makeup from your face and shed your borrowed spangles. You've donned the uniform of truth and hid the hurt that dangles in heart and mind. And one by one, you've set your shoulders straight to meet each challenge and to wait till justice unto you is done. The drums of war boom out again. We join the ranks in keeping, conscious of the need to share the trials of a world that's weeping. Seek not for honor nor for gain, but rather for the joy of doing. For credit is an empty thing, unless it's through the joy of giving. So now I'm going to play just a little bit from the beginning of the live recording of the premiere of Black, Brown, and Beige. The voice you hear at the beginning is Ellington introducing his orchestra and his new composition. And when Black, the first of the three movements, begins, we hear the boom, 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 boom of the drum. And just as in the typescript, it comes back repeatedly as a kind of leitmotif. And now comes uh, our latest attempt, our probably our most serious attempt, and definitely our longest composition. However, in mentioning the length of Black, Brown, and Beige, we would like to say that this is a parallel to the history of the American Negro, and of course, it, it tells a long story. And I hope that you will take into consideration the fact that in telling the story of the work song, for instance, which is the first theme, we use it in its many forms. For instance, when, you know, uh, the work song is sung while you work, of course, there's a place for the song and then there's a place to grunt, you know, and the impact of your work. And, uh, of course, after that comes the, the spiritual theme, which is the second theme of the first movement. And today we find that the two are very closely related, and so it naturally necessitates developing the two and showing their close relationship. The first movement of Black, Brown, and Beige is called Black. So does that remind you of anything? It should. That boom, 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 boom we hear in Work Song, the first episode of the movement Black, we hear it also in The Laborers, the first part of Symphony in Black. If you know Ellington's music well, your ears will have pricked up when I said the words Come Sunday when I was reading excerpts from the Black, Brown, and Beige typescript. That's the title of the most beloved and famous single piece of music to come out of Ellington's Black, Brown, and Beige, the standard Come Sunday. And Come Sunday is clearly the representation of the part of the typescript where Ellington is imagining Bula finding comfort in religion.
And again, this might remind us of a passage in the earlier film, Symphony in Black, namely the funeral of the small child. I've been going on for long enough here, but I want to leave you with one last thought. Remember where this podcast started off? Me referring to Ellington as the Duke of Ellington, true American royalty. This is how Ellington understood himself. Indeed, it's how he understood all the oppressed people of the world. Kings in exile. Once and future kings. All right, well, that should do it for today. Thanks for listening to the M402 in Exile podcast. You'll be hearing from me again pretty soon. And in the meantime, keep washing your hands. <laughs>